the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had given the Israelites many victories as they went about conquering the land of Canaan, the Promised Land. They defeated the walled cities of Jericho and Ai, saw the sun stand still and flaming hail fall from the sky as they defeated five of the Amorite kings with their armies. Israel also saw victory over the remaining northern Canaanites with their chariots that had banded together against the Israelites. There was also victory over the giants in the land. After years of war, the land finally saw rest. God was faithful to his promises. Yet there was still work to be done as Joshua and Eleazar would be used to distribute the land among the tribes of Israel. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 15, verse 1. The whole theme of the book of Joshua was victory in Jesus. And that began to look at at the start of Joshua where, you know, we learned we got experiencing that victorious Christian life. We've got to get into the battle. We've got to be strengthened by God. We've got to be courageous. You know, we've got to follow his marching orders. We looked at so many different keys, but the last key to living that victorious Christian life was resting in Christ's finished work on the cross. The rest of Joshua, once we got to chapter 13, it teaches us how to do that last part, how to rest in the finished work of Christ, how to enter into all that Christ has already won for us. First, we need to let God choose our lot. We learned that, I believe, in chapter 13. Then secondly, last week, we learned we need to live in light of God's promises like Caleb had his entire life, to live in light of God's promises. Well, tonight, we're going to see that the third key to resting in Christ's finished work is we need to mix God's promises with a very important ingredient. Because even though Jesus has won the war, we still have battles to fight to take the land that he won. And we can't let those challenges diminish God's promises. We have to mix in faith. That's our part. We have to mix in faith with God's promises. So chapter 15, we begin as we're at this point now where Joshua is dividing the land to the tribes. And remember, he was about to do the tribe of Judah. But what happened? Caleb said, hold the phone. God made me a promise and you're not giving out any land until I get the land that was promised to me. Caleb's gotten his land now. So in chapter 15, we start with the tribe of Judah. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah by their families. Now we're going to start with the borders of Judah, and we're going to start with the southern border. So it says that even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin southward was the uttermost part of the south coast. This was the part that God picked for Judah. Now in Numbers chapter 33, 54, God instructed Moses that a tribe's territory should correspond to its population. So in other words, bigger tribes were to get more land. 
And Judah was a big tribe, but Joshua gave them way too much land. This will be explained in chapter 19 when Simeon gets his allotment in the middle of Judah. Judah got way too much land. I personally believe that Joshua wanted to give out even more land than we see here. He wanted to give out all the land up here, but because Israel started to exhibit some unbelief, he couldn't. But that's just my theory. The Bible doesn't say that, so you can take it or leave it. Before we get into some of these explanations of borders and territory, you need to understand something. Up and down never mean north and south, okay? This is something that throws people off a lot. People say, "How the Bible's not true. It can't even get direction right. It would say they went up to Jerusalem when they came from Galilee. Jerusalem's clearly south. When the Bible speaks of up and down, we have to realize it's not Florida. The Bible lands are not flat, okay? They call them five fingers, these ridges that are in Judah, and then the valleys in between them. And then when you get to the southern part, you've got these rolling hills. So up and down are always elevation in the Bible. It will be confusing if you don't read with this understanding. So just keep that in mind as we read. So the uttermost, which we're going to see that word a lot, it means the extremity or the end, is this border with the kingdom of Edom or the nation of Edom. That is their southern extremity. So Judah's territory marks the southern border of the entire nation, bumping up against the nation of Edom here, and then the deserts of Sinai here. That's the southern border of the nation of Israel, the land that God allotted to them and that Joshua gave out here. The explanation of their borders start there and then begin moving west, verse 2. And their south border was from the shore of the Salt Sea, from the bay that looks southward. The word bay is the same word for tongue in the Hebrew. So if you notice here, it kind of looks like the Dead Sea sticking out its tongue at the bottom. And so that's why they called it, we use the word bay, but they called it the tongue. And so that's where this starts. The, the area here, right here at the bottom of the tongue, you'll never see that map the same for the rest of your life, was the, the bottom of their border. Now, if you go there today, sadly, half of the tongue is now a salty marsh because the Dead Sea is, is just dying. It's just shrinking. Israel and Jordan put together a joint project where they're trying to run water Israel from the Mediterranean and Jordan from the Persian Gulf here where they can fill it with more salt water so that the Dead Sea doesn't go away. The problem is, is that the Dead Sea has lots of minerals in it that are useful. And so it's mined. And then in addition, it's an arid area. And so with Israel diverting and Jordan diverting water from the Jordan River, that's the only water comes in. That's why it's the Dead Sea. There's no, no other water coming in. So that area, that half of the tongue is, is burnt. It's a salty marsh. Now it says from there, verse 3, it went out the south side to Ma'al e Krabim, which means the Scorpion Pass. So we go down, and again, I don't know why it's named the Scorpion Pass. I just know I probably don't want to go because that doesn't sound like fun. These are the cliffs that serve as a natural border between Israel and Edom until you end up coming further south down here to the desert of Zin. And so it says... And then it passed along to Zin. And then it starts ascending the area. It goes down to the valley, which is from these cliffs. And then it begins to move up again to Kadesh Barnea. So it ascends on the south side into Kadesh Barnea. And then passed along to Hezron and went up to Adar and fetched a compass, which means it goes around in a circle to Karakah. And so you see these curves. It's just talking about when it would curve around instead of going in a straight line. Verse 4, from thence it passed toward Asmon and went out unto the river of Egypt, and the goings out of there 
coast, which means their border, we're at the sea. This shall be your south coast. Now, the river of Egypt here is not the Nile River, uh, but the Wadi El Arish, and it's a river that marks the border between Canaan and the Sinai region, and it goes out to the sea. And that is their, So this is their entire southern border here in verses 1 through 4. The east border, verse 5, is the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, even unto the end of Jordan. So this is our starting point. We went that way. Now we're going to have our starting point and just go straight up that way. So at the end of it is the top of the Dead Sea. And it mentions here in verse 5, and their border in the north quarter was from the bay, the north tongue of the sea. It's part right there. The north tongue of the sea was from the bay at the sea at the uttermost part of Jordan. From there now, we begin to move west. And so we see here in verse 6 that the border went up to Beth Hagla. Beth Hagla is a little over an hour southeast of Jericho. So it's in this valley that begins to start moving west, slightly northwest from the Dead Sea. Okay, And so you're moving that way, and he's just giving us these cities that were well-known to them and, and landmarks that were well-known to them that begin to mark this border. We're going to move very slowly, mentioning quite a few names through verse 11. So the border went Beth Hagla, verse 6, and passed along by the north of Beth Araba, and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. I don't know who he was and why he had a stone. No one else does either. And the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor, and so northward, looking toward Gilgal, that is before the going up to Adumim, which is on the south side of the river, and the border passed toward the waters of Enshemesh, and the goings out thereof were at Enrogay. All those verses, that only covered this tiny little stretch of land right here. So it's a lot of verses, again, because it's going to mark their boundary with Benjamin. They want to make sure they get it right and no territory stolen from Benjamin. So he gives a lot of details here. They don't mean a whole lot to us, and they're not meant to mean a whole lot. It's a lot of words for a very small region that's there. But from here now, we're going to head toward Jerusalem. So verse 8, And the border went up by the valley of the sun of Hinnom unto the south side of the Jebusite. The same is Jerusalem. So now we're going to move here. We moved up that little stretch of land. Now we're moving west to Jerusalem. And it calls it here the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Now, three valleys surround Jerusalem. This is the one on the southwest side. And it's better known by the name Gehenna or Tophet. And that's the place where child pagan sacrifices took place. It's also the place where later on, because of that, the Israelis didn't develop it when they took Jerusalem and they just dumped all their trash down there. Gehenna, of course, we know as the Lake of Fire. And the reason it got its name in the Bible for the Lake of Fire is because it's the trash heap. It's the place you don't want to go. It's the place that no Jew would ever go except to bring their trash. They treated it that way because that's where child sacrifices, the Canaanites did them in that valley. It's also, interestingly enough, that's the valley that religious leaders purchased with Judas's blood money. It's the valley where Judas hung himself. Just adds to the sadness of Judas's story. Now, at this point in time, the city of Jerusalem is not actually called Jerusalem. It's called the city of Jebus. And if you ever come to Israel with us, one of the coolest parts about going to the city of Jerusalem is they have excavated the old city of Jebus. I mean, you are, you are down. You are down underground. And you can go through the caves. If you remember when David took the city of Jerusalem, 
He told his soldiers, he said, listen, he fired Joab because he hated Joab. Joab was a good man, loved, I mean, Joab was not a good man, but he was very loyal to David. He was good to David. But he's always doing these things that David just goes, what are you doing? You're so bloodthirsty, man. And so he fired him like four times. So he fired Joab, his most recent time he'd fired him. And so he says, he's trying to get a new general. He says, the guy that takes the tower up there in the city of Jebus, he can be my general. So you're gonna go in the tunnels that Joab fought back the Jebusites and took that tower with so he could be the general again. It's crazy because you go walking through there and you're like, I can barely walk through here. How would you fight in here? And, uh, but it's a cool experience because you go into that place that was the city of the Jebusites before David took it and it became known as Jerusalem. So here it calls that the city of the Jebusites on the, the, the valley of the son of Hittim on the south side of the Jebusite, the same is Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lies in front of the valley of Hinnom westward. So now we're moving further west of Jerusalem. We're moving to this middle region here. And it says, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. I don't know where the valley of the giants is. I don't know why it's called that. There's tons of valleys in that area. It could be any of them. Uh, but if we go down to verse 9, it just, it just signifies we're moving further west. Verse 9, and the border was drawn from the top of that hill after the valley of the giants under the fountain of the water of Nephtoah and went out to the cities of Mount Ephron and the border was drawn to Baala, which is Kirjath-Jerim. And so again, we're just, we're moving. I think Kirjath-Jerim is right around here. So we're just moving slowly west, places that they knew, places that are not necessarily, we know exactly where they are because they're not necessarily important to us today, but they were important to them back then. Verse 10, and then the border compassed or took, took a circle. So you, you can see how it starts to bump up here. And so it, it goes in more of a circle instead of straight. In verse 10, from Baala westward unto Mount Seir and passed along onto the side of the Mount Jerim, which is Chesalon on the north side and went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out unto the side of Ekron northward and... The border was drawn to Shikron and passed along to Mount Baalah and went out to Jabneel and the goings out of the border were at the Mediterranean Sea, the sea right here. So that's just what we're doing. We're just going. We went, first we went this way and then we went up and went this way. And of course, the entire border here is just the Mediterranean Sea. If you noticed, one of the places that's in there is Ekron is one of the Philistine cities. In fact, Ashdod, and a couple other Philistine cities, royal cities, Gaza, are all in the area that Judah is allotted. So even though Judah got a lot of land, they're going to have to deal with the Philistines. Now in verse 12, it just says, the west border was to the great sea and the border thereof. These are the borders of the children of Judah around about according to their families. And one of the important families there is the family of Caleb. So we get a little story here about Caleb's land. Verse 13, and unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he, that's Joshua, gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. We learned that last week. And Caleb drove from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. But Caleb's not content with that. It says in verse 15 that he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir before was Kirjath, Saphir. And Caleb said, he that smites Kirjath Saphir and takes it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, to wife. So here we see this guy. He's got a certain amount of land, 
and he dispossessed, you know, these giants. He, he, he killed these giants, took their land. But this 85-year-old warrior is not finished. Now, no one knows exactly where Debir is. Most people believe it's about 10 miles, I think Hebron, somewhere in this area. And they think it's to the northwest of Hebron, about 10 miles, somewhere in that region. Now, Judges tells us that Caleb was in charge of all of Judah's army. So he's basically constructing all of the ground that they have to take in this land from any enemies that remain. He's in charge of that. But this was land that he's personally taking because it's near the land assigned to him. And so he appeals to his own family to lead the charge and says, whoever takes this city will get my daughter, Aksa, to wife. Now, Aksa means ankle bracelet, which means... You know, she's, she's a, like a piece of jewelry. She's valuable to me. She's beautiful to me. This is a daughter that Caleb loved. It was likely his youngest daughter since he's 85 and likely the last of his daughters to get married. And, you know, it's interesting. We look at this, we think how barbaric to offer his daughter as the wife to the man who takes this, captures this city. Well, how do we look for a spouse in our culture? We tend to look for a spouse in our culture based on, attraction or common ground. Well, marriage matches back then, they were arranged to put your family or a family member in the best situation. So Caleb, he wants to match his daughter with someone who's not going to rest on past victories, but will continue to trust God when he's gone. For the man who marries her, he gets the favor of one of the most important people in his tribe. So both families come out ahead. Caleb gets a good husband for his his daughter, one that will trust God and and be a man of faith. And then the guy gets a close tie to one of the most powerful families in all of Judah. That's how they did things back then. People often critique arranged marriage by saying, what about love? What about love? What about choice? What about all that? Please understand what we often call love in our culture isn't. What we often call love or the opposite of arranged marriage, that I get to pick my spouse, this idea that I pick the one for me, there's a lot of selfishness involved in that. (laughs) Love is the opposite of selfishness. We learned that this morning, right? It's denial of self and laying down your life for someone else. And more often than not, when we're choosing a spouse in our culture, we don't look around and go, who can I lay my life down for? We look out and we go, who's attractive? Or Who do we have common ground with? Or who might make me happy for the rest of my life? Or who could I be happy with for the rest of my life? And even from the perspective of maybe good reasons and say, who's responsible with money? Or who's a hard worker? Or who might be a good parent? Or or who might be, you know, someone that we can share life together? Or, you know, who who is nice? All all these various things. Those things are all for our benefit. (laughs) Our culture, it tends to be about personal selfishness where back then it was simply about family selfishness. So I bring that up because does that mean we should go back to arranged marriages? No, (laughs) no, neither method is biblical. It's just that's what the culture did then, and this is what our culture does now. Neither way is right. You know, I I see... (laughs) So recently, uh, a very famous Christian, you know, renounced his faith, and he's probably most known for I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he was pretty responsible for this rebirth of this weird, very formal courting type of idea that started to take place in the church, where terrified young Christian men would go over to the prospective date's house to be grilled by the father on whether or not they are marriageable material 
even though they're just looking for the first date. And the amount of pressure that created for individuals who were just trying to get to know each other and trying to build a friendship put all the pressure and focus on this commitment level that doesn't need to be there yet. I've never been in favor of courting. I hear Christians even still use it today. Well, I I don't believe in dating. I believe in courting. Hold on a minute. Hold, Hold on a minute. The original way that dating came about was that you would go over and you'd request permission from the father to get to know the girl, to build a friendship with the girl. This idea of dating being, I got the hots for you, do you got the hots for me, let's go make some hot something together? I mean, that idea of dating is foreign. That, that is not where dating came from, okay? The whole idea of, of dating, where it originated from, was the idea of building friendship first. So whether you do it with the way the culture tends to do it, which is you got the hots for somebody and you just want some action, you know, or, or the feel goods to come your way, even if it's not physical action, it's emotional action, or we're going to arrange the marriage, you know, with some weird courtship thing that it, the church still seems to like in some places, you're missing the point. The biblical method of marriage is we shouldn't be searching out for a spouse based on attraction or to better our position in life. Biblical marriage is based on friendship and is designed to be entered by two people who embrace the challenge of helping their future spouse become more like Christ. That's what marriage is about. When we do our premarital counseling with couples, and then when we do marriage counseling with couples, we're either trying to get them to understand this or bring them back to this truth. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 7. It's right after the husbands are told to dwell with your wives with understanding. But then it explains why. As being heirs together of the grace of life. That's what a husband and wife are. That's what a, the biblical marriage is. You are heirs together of the grace of life. I remember when I read that the, for the first time, trying to understand it and go, what does that mean? Like really mean. And I thought, I have no clue. So let's break it down into the words. Heirs. What's an heir? An heir is someone who is inheriting something, right? So you are inheriting something together. What are you inheriting together? The grace, God's unmerited favor of life. We came up with this definition that we explained to either couples who are getting married or couples who are trying to get their marriage back on track. That you have been brought together by God to help each other on your way to heaven. It's that simple. You're both helping each other as you're inheriting that eternal life. So you are called into this friendship. Now, does that mean that that friendship doesn't have a track? No, I'm not saying that, all right? I, I'm not saying go and find the person you're least attracted to and say they're a perspective because it won't be selfish. That's not, no. I, I, I've seen Christians do that too. They'll say, I don't even like them, but I know God told me to marry them. And I'm like, uh, that's not gonna end well. Listen, certainly love true biblical love increases attraction because you begin to appreciate the things about that person, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, all those things. But generally speaking, what makes a difference between a normal friendship and a friendship where you want to do that with somebody, where you want to spend the rest of your life together, is that the friendship deepens past just a a casual level. And so there is a desire there to be one with that person. There's a desire there to do more. That usually begins to where attraction, biblical attraction, should take place. Marriage is the beautiful covenant relationship that is made between two people who choose to serve each other all the rest of the days of their life. 
It is also a relationship that has come together to help each other point to Jesus and to draw closer to Him as they draw closer to each other. Not just based on emotions or feelings, love and marriage is a conscious choice to serve the one you love on our way to heaven. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.